cultivar la tierra En ella espero encontrar remedio para mi pena Aquí plantaré el rosal de las espinas Hello everyone and welcome back to the Future Cities podcast I'm your host for this week, Jason Sauer, once again recording from Valdivia, Chile. And I could not waste this opportunity to change the introductory theme to a song by one of my favorite Chilean musicians, Violeta Barra. Uh, And the song is called La Jardinera, and it describes how Violeta loves to garden as a way of helping her get over lost loves. And it's a very apt song to have for this episode because I am going to be returning to the topic of urban agriculture, this time in Phoenix, Arizona, and more focused on the broad-scale deployment logistics and the benefits of this sort of broad-scale deployment rather than on the socioeconomic consequences like I covered previously or on the ways that it can help you get over your ex, as Bioletta has covered in this music. So to be clear, I'm not trying to sideline any of the issues of green gentrification or the socioeconomic conditions which urban gardening can create, um, which are certainly important in their own rights and obviously I think deserve their own episode. Um, But rather, I am trying here to track more closely with the author expertise and the context of their specific paper. I normally do a sort of long introduction to topics discussed in my episodes, but since I think the idea of urban agriculture is probably pretty well known and covered in a previous episode, I am just going to get right into this one. So for this week, I spoke with authors Dr. Nasli Uruder-Aragon and PhD student Michelle Stuhlmacher about a paper they co-authored with Jordan P. Smith, Nicholas Clinton, and Matei Georgescu. You could barely tell I had to pull up the PDF. Uh, And the paper itself is called Urban Agriculture's Bounty, Contributions to Phoenix's Sustainability Goals. And I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Future Cities podcast. I'm here today to talk with two researchers on urban agriculture. Uh, they are Nasli Uder Aragon and Michelle Stuhlmacher. Stuhlmacher, excuse me, I've already uh, mispronounced a name. That's great. Um, <laughs> they are part of a team of researchers uh, that worked on a paper called Urban Agriculture's Bounty Contributions to Phoenix's Sustainability Goals. Uh, so, Let's just go ahead and start off with some introductions. Uh, Nasli, uh, tell me about yourself. How'd you get into this subject? You know, how'd you end up in Phoenix? Uh, you know, just kind of dish. Sure, sure. I'm originally from Turkey, and uh, this is my second stint at graduate school at ASU. I um, I did a master's in finance in Boston College, first time around. Then I was working as a consultant for uh, for several years. Then we moved to Phoenix for work with my husband. And then I realized the more and more of my work in um, energy consulting was looking into environmental impacts, doing environmental impact assessments. And I got, you know, I got more drawn into the topic. So I wanted to do um, uh, a more advanced sort of study research into it. And I wanted to do a PhD. And looking at ASU, because we were living here already, um, there wasn't really an environmental science field per se. And then I got connected with a professor at um, Geo- the Department of Geography and, and I got to working on, you know, 
start with biofuels, uh, interestingly, but then it sort of diverged into generally like sustainable land use. And one of the one of the projects that cropped up during my you know five and a half years of PhD was um, urban agriculture as a as an application of sustainable land use. Okay, that's really cool, uh, Michelle. Uh, what about yourself? Um, I'm going to put in one plug for Nosley before we move to me. Is that she's okay. now Doctor Nosley? She just oh. uh, defended oh. like a week or two ago. So. Congratulations, Doctor. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm uh, from the Chicago area originally uh, and have moved around the U.S. Uh, a decent amount for school and work since then. Uh, and I came to, to Phoenix for grad school. Um, ASU's got a, a great reputation for the kind of research I do in geography with um, integrating human and natural systems and specifically in the context of, of urban systems. So yeah, that's, that's great. what brought me here. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I guess I should also ask, like, what is this, your general thesis or dissertation research focused on, or what was it focused on in the case of the uh, the graduate here? Um, <laughs> but is it mostly about urban agriculture, or does it kind of spread out into other topics? It does. It does. It has a very uh, anodyne title, uh, Sustainable Land Use and Multiscales. Uh, but um, yeah, so I, I look at um, the use of marginal lands in non-urban contexts. Specifically, I've looked at use of marginal lands for biofuels. And uh, it, yeah. it was a, a more of a, a controversial subject when I started looking at it. But um, the way I, the way me and my colleagues look at it is to do sort of the integrated or coupled modeling of both environmental and economic impacts of this, or whether we could make it both sustainable and economically viable. And usually the answer comes down to if you have a right price on carbon, yes. Um, and then also includes, you know, looking at smaller scale, like city scale analysis and urban agriculture is one of them, looking at underutilized spaces like rooftops and building facades and vacant lots and see if we can use them in a, in a different way, um, sort of hopefully better than they're being used or not used at the moment. So generally, it's just sustainable land use is, is my focus. Okay. And just to, before we get to Michelle, can you uh, define uh, what you described as marginal land use? So marginal means the returns are low, but returns are low with respect to what? In, in my case, looking at non-urban land, we look at returns low with respect to the dominant use, which is generally agriculture in the regions that I'm studying, which is Midwest and, um, and the, the plains. Okay. So in my, in my research, marginal lands means anything that is not currently actively farmed. Okay. Um, and are, it, not actively farms, not just that it's potentially low value land, but it has more to do with uh, kind of Well, land. yeah, yeah. And then, and then we use, you know, these snapshots of land use. Uh, and then, well, and at the time the land was mapped, it was not being used. But mm -hmm. then turns out that it's very easy to convert some of these lands into um, farmland use. Then two years later, we go back and look at the same plot or the same region. And well, lo and behold, they're growing corn there. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, for example, you know, I'm not sure if, how familiar with, um, you know, you're with US biofuel policy, but we've seen this happen once um, the biofuel policy changed, that many of the areas that were previously um, grasslands or not farmed or left for fallow or pasture were converted into corn once the policy changed very quickly, within a year or two. Sure. Very cool. Michelle, uh, what is your focus or foci? 
Um, yeah, so broadly, I'm interested in um, how you can use remote sensing and other kinds of geospatial tools like uh, spatial statistics or something uh, to measure landscape change over time and link that to um, socio-ecological processes. Uh, so I'm I'm mostly focused on on urban areas in this research, but also trying to understand um, like how like not only like kind of biophysical outcomes of land use change, but how uh, institutions or policies cause that land use change initially. And so what got you too interested in urban agriculture to begin with? Uh, do you have like um, sort we of have a, a story? Yeah, I was like, yeah. Do you, do you have a narrative you can? Yeah. yeah. All right, let's hear it. Okay, so this, this paper employs a methodological framework from a, a 2018 paper that Nosley and I were part of. Um, and this was like a macro scale approach paper and it integrated a, a pretty big number of publicly available data sets and it computed both yield and potential ecosystem services of urban agriculture if it were implemented globally. So it was like a country level, like millions or billions of dollars worth of yield like in its final output. Um, so for example, we found that if like in this hypothetical urban agriculture implementation scenario, um, urban agriculture crop production contribute like five to 10 of the global non-cereal crop production. Um, and so it was really interesting to integrate all these global scale remotely sensed data sets on things like rainfall or temperature. Um, and that's like definitely my background in terms of, of working with this kind of data. Um, but a limitation of, of modeling urban agriculture at a global scale is that you miss a lot of the nuances, especially um, the ones related to the, the distribution of benefits uh, of urban agriculture. And so in this Phoenix paper, we apply a similar methodological framework, but we're able to quantify um, potential contributions of urban agriculture at, at the neighborhood level, and then also link them to some of the city of Phoenix's sustainability goals. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that's something that a lot of researchers kind of deal with, where we have these massive data sets to potentially use, and we have the tools now to use them and sometimes it's very useful to do these kind of global scale studies, mm -hmm. uh, but you end up having to make so many generalities and assumptions about use that may not necessarily apply in specific regions. And I think Phoenix is uh, kind of an exemplary city for many reasons. The particular uh, that I'm thinking of is that it's a, a desert city. Um, mm -hmm. So the sort of, when we talk about vacant lots, uh, you know, they're maybe not going to be as green as you would see, like an uncared for lots uh, in another city. There's concerns right. about water that other cities potentially don't have. Um, it's just kind of a, it's like everything is the same, but it's kind of a bit on the ceiling or something like that is, is what Phoenix can feel like sometimes. Yeah, and Phoenix has like some unique sustainability goals too that yeah. other cities might not have. Yeah. Um, that's a perfect segue, actually. So could you talk about uh, Phoenix's sustainability goals? So, um, you know, because I don't think that many residents or even researchers like myself uh, realize that we had them or at least six <laughs> of them. Um, yeah, so tell me about what those goals are and like which ones you talk about in this paper. Do you want me to do this one, Nazli? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, uh, so in 2016, the city of Phoenix sent out um, seven sustainability goals they wanted to achieve by 2050, and they cover things like transportation and waste and water stewardship, 
building and land use, parks, open spaces, um, clean air and local food systems. Uh, and so I totally agree that most residents might not know about these goals, but I think some of the actions that the city is taking to achieve these goals have gotten a lot of media attention. Um, so like I don't commute using a car and so the city's commitment to expanding light rail, which is part of um, this set of goals um, and adding more pedestrian and bike path infrastructure is something that I kind of see on a more regular basis. Yeah, yeah, and then in our in our paper, we decided that uh, like while we could contribute to these goals in a couple of different ways, we focused on local food systems, um, the parks and open space goal, and then the building and land use goal. Yeah, so I guess uh, of these goals that you just listed, um, why are, are you particularly interested in them or why are we as Phoenix or the Tempe uh, area particularly interested or concerned about them? Well, I mean, I, I can't speak to the city's motivations in, uh, in why they chose these set of goals. Because, um, you know, as far as I know, Phoenix, I mean, we rank at the, you know, we're not ranked best in, in many things as a state. But Phoenix itself, I think, is a, is a growing uh, metropolitan area. I think we're doing pretty well in some respects. Um, so, but overall, I think the idea is to not only improve the environmental sustainability, but make the community more livable. Uh, you know, the ones that focused on public transport, parks and preserves are focused on those. We generally see uh, a sort of uneven distribution of some of these benefits in different neighborhoods. You know, some of the areas in Phoenix are very well endowed with parks and green spaces and access to trails. Um, and others are also, also private green spaces, you know. And others, um, you know, have a lot of space but not a lot of parks, community centers. Um, these are also the places that have um, little infrastructure in other respects. So I think the city is just also probably interested in improving this. But uh, before we set about working on our paper, we actually did not seek input from the city that we were gonna focus on these goals. So we wanted to do a, a sort of a dispassionate analysis of our own, the way we see it and, and see how urban agriculture can help, given one of the goals was local food systems. Very cool. And one of the things that you mentioned in the paper that I think uh, people even in, in Phoenix kind of lose track of is the fact that we're the fifth largest city or the metropolitan area of the, the greater Phoenix area is the fifth largest metropolitan area in the United States, which I think is, it's impressive to think about even when you live there. I think like if you look on Google, we only, like for the city of Phoenix, it's registered as like 1.4, 1.5 million people or something like that. But really Phoenix is an agglomeration of many cities that have just Absolutely. kind of grown together over time into this massive, massive area. I mean, that's anywhere from Scottsdale to, to Tempe to Mesa to Gilbert. You know, there's just a bunch of different zones in the area that add up to something closer to five million, I want to say, is like the, the estimate. Um, that I'm yeah, it's over five. You're yeah. right. And also depending on how many uh, people are coming down to, to weather the winter, uh, <laughs> you know, the population growth yeah. decreases pretty dramatically, even just due to seasonal changes. Even that you brought up, um, you know, so this is a, we, we are talking about a larger metro area. The, the sustainability goals that we look at are for city of Phoenix proper. And the yeah. area we cover is the city of Phoenix. So um, I think Tempe also has its own sort of sustainability plan that recently came out, but none of the other um, cities, I don't think Scottsdale, Chandler, or Glendale have yet gotten that far. But what would happen is that if, I think that if Phoenix spearheaded implementation of these type of goals, I believe there'd be spillover effects. I think the other cities would adopt uh, some of these things as benefits started occurring, you know, getting dispersed in, in the neighborhoods. So uh, hopefully Phoenix will be the example and Tempe to lead the way from core to the out. 
Uh, yes, and I, I apologize for kind of confusing or potentially confusing the listeners here. The paper that we are going to be discussing deals specifically with Phoenix and not the surrounding areas necessarily, uh, but they are uh, very closely linked as Nosley is outlined here. So let's go ahead and talk about your paper. Um, so your paper looks broadly at how urban agriculture can help Phoenix uh, meet its sustainability goals. So talk about what you did in the paper in terms of your analysis and what you think are some of the most important findings. I, I think there's a lot of great and interesting stuff here to, like you said, be potentially applied in, in the other surrounding cities. Um, but I think urban agriculture is also just something people don't really think about in the context of a desert city. So this yeah. is especially cool. So yeah, sorry. You're, you're right, no, so um, so the, as, as Michelle uh, mentioned, the, the, uh, the sort of motivation for the whole analysis is that we kind of did a global assessment and we, we knew that it would be nice to replicate, refine that analysis at an urban scale. And then we became aware of, you know, the city of Phoenix's sustainability goals, and that sort of bringing the two was a natural match. Uh, so we look at the, these three sustainability goals on local food systems, parks, and you know, green open spaces, and energy and, um, and buildings and uh, land use. Then we line up what urban ag agriculture can do for the desired outcomes for each of these goals. For example, for the local food systems goals, City of Phoenix says their, their desired outcome is to eliminate food deserts in the city. And then we go about saying, okay, how can urban agriculture can help with eliminating food deserts? Can I stop you there real quick? So can you actually define what a food desert is? I know this isn't necessarily the part of the broader point you're talking about, but just to- Okay, on the okay. yeah, so yes, that is a, actually a very kind of a technical <laughs> definition. But uh, so the city and we uh, use the same uh, definition of food desert. It is based on a U.S. Department of Agriculture study that was first done in um, 2009, I believe, and then updated in 2015. It combines population and income data from the census and also very fine level um, retail food outlet locations made nationwide. So there are variations of the food desert um, you know, in granularity. But in our study, we use something called a half mile measure, which means a food desert is a low-income census tract with a significant number, meaning at least 500 people or share of the population, at least 33%, that is more than half a mile from the nearest supermarket, supercenter, or a large grocery store. So bodegas don't count. Uh, convenience stores don't count. And to get further into detail, a low-income census tract would have a poverty rate of over 20%, or the median family income would be 80% below the 80% uh, percentile of the statewide median family income. So basically, this is how we define food deserts. And this is a national assessment. Anyone can um, go to USDA's um, website. Um, it's, it's a, a sub-agency of the Department of Agriculture called Economic Research Service. And if you search for food deserts or food atlas, they have maps and tools and all kinds of cool stuff. And they also have the underlying raw data, you know, at the census tract level, which is pretty fine scale. So uh, could you, I guess, keep going about um, what you did in particular with the study? So, so if the desired outcome is eliminating food deserts, then we say, okay, let's come up with a, a mechanism of how UA or urban agriculture can help achieve this uh, desired outcome. And then we associate some metrics, you know, like how much uh, tons we can produce using urban agriculture in total tons, tons per census block, tons per person living in that um, census block group. And, and then we also specifically look at the block groups that are overlapping with these known food deserts to see we produce less or more in proportion of um, local, um, you know, locally produced uh, 
food uh, in these uh, areas. Uh, the, so basically, we, we merge census tracts into block groups and then we look at the production there. And in terms of um, the green open spaces, we look at, um, you know, if we, if we were to use urban agriculture to convert vacant lots into green spaces, do we add more park-like spaces in census block group level? And what kind of an increase do we get in green space area? Um, we identify block groups without any parks before we started and to see if we can add more block groups, you know, to the, with, with sort of park-like spaces in, in Phoenix area. And for energy um, use in buildings, we look at, uh, you know, putting rooftop gardens on a subset of buildings, not all of them would be suitable. Uh, and, and see if these uh, rooftop gardens would have benefits by insulating the roof and, and reduce energy use, and also then, <clears throat> sorry, reduce um, CO2 emissions from buildings. And to achieve this, the, the, we start by doing an assessment of the space available. So we use um, a, a very fine scale data using uh, aerial imagery and cadastral data to identify or do an inventory of vacant lots in the city. And there are different versions of vacant lots. You know, some are paved, some are unpaved, some are already covered with vegetation. But we look at un all unpaved lots that are um, either vegetated or, or barren. And, uh, and we also use data like LIDAR uh, to look at buildings and identify suitable rooftops and, and suitable building sites of facades that we can put out, um, you know, put up um, urban agriculture applications. Yeah, and not to interrupt fully here, but just to clarify, LIDAR is, what is it, light? Uh, light, light. <laughs> Dude, I actually blanked on what the, the acronym stands for. No, I know. Uh, it's it's a radar. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And the city of Phoenix, or maybe Arizona State, I'm not sure which, had a, paid for a campaign to be done over, like, the vast majority of the Phoenix metro area. Um, and then it's just like point clouds is the raw form of the data. And um, the data that we got was processed and basically it shows a building footprint with, uh, with the height of the building. And so with the footprint, we can um, roughly approximate how big the roof would be. And if it's a flat roof, so it can be used for urban agriculture. And then um, with the height, we can roughly approximate uh, how big a facade would be. But we only assume that urban agriculture is happening on like a, the first story facade on one side um, sure. for like access and light uh, and, and then we're not putting it on every building either. <laughs> yeah, sure. what, is yeah. The, what is the resolution of the data that you had here? I think it was like one meter. Yeah, so for the uh, the remote sensing imagery to determine where the vacant lots are, that's one meter. It's the National Agriculture Imagery Program yeah. um, like aerial imagery, so it's taken from airplanes and then the LIDAR is, is super fine resolution so by the time we got it, it was just um, you know, building footprints and kind of near, yeah. near exact. I don't know that we've really talked about this much on the podcast, but there's some really amazing resources at cities and really nationwide that we have uh, that's very high resolution and outlines the, the details of like all buildings uh, and things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you've zoomed in on Google Maps, you may have noticed that they have three-dimensional buildings uh, in some cases, and they can basically uh, create these maps for access online. Uh, using high resolution data like LIDAR, which basically will give you height information of landscape for every one meter. And you can kind of back out from that data what building heights are and kind of recreate the shape of them because you have, you have every square meter in the city. And so you can kind of figure figure out what you're looking at. So anyway, yeah. as, a, as a 
yeah an awesome area of future research in in urban places okay. it's definitely like data is more concentrated in the developed world so uh yes. it'll be cool in the next couple of years seeing more in the developing world i would kill to have lidar data down here in valdivia, oh, in valdivia for, yeah. because i'm doing hydrological studies and having this uh high resolution data is also critical for figuring out watersheds mm -hmm. uh, so i mean if we have this urban area and it's but we only have like resolution at every 30 meters or something like that. We mm -hmm. have these like really grainy images of what the ground of a city actually looks like, which makes it very difficult to figure out where all of the stormwater is going. Um, yeah. so in addition to figuring out building sizes and topography, you get to do all this really cool hydrological uh, work with it too. So anyway, just wanted to clarify because I don't know that we've ever talked about LIDAR, but maybe we have and I just missed that episode. Um, yeah, so, so I mean, so what were some of your key findings then? Yeah, so I think one that's kind of fun uh, is that we definitely see a huge level of variability between black groups in some, um, in terms of produce. So some have less than one ton and some have over 6,000 tons. Um, but when you average it across the number of people in the study area, it's about uh, 150 kilograms per person per black group, which accounts for like 90% of the existing fresh produce consumption. So while we don't necessarily see urban agriculture being implemented like quite at this scale in reality, it does show that if it were implemented at a, at a larger scale, there's huge potential for, for serving that fresh produce yeah. need. And you, you introduced uh, some really cool statistics for that. So I think there was something about how Phoenix in general is like, you know, the average person is not meeting their daily vegetable and fruit consumption yeah. uh, as it currently is. It was pretty low value. Do you remember what it was off the top of your head? It was 85% uh, of 80. most Arizonans do yeah. not. It's, yeah, for Arizona. Right, so 85% yeah. are not currently meeting uh, those demands, but this could potentially meet 90% of of, uh, of an individual's of like non-citrus produce consumption. Yeah. Yeah, we get into the weeds in some of these definitions now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So because some people consider fruit juice as fruit consumption, you have to be very specific. We're talking about non-juice, non-citrus fruits and vegetables. Oh, so no juicing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't count. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, sorry, I didn't want to derail that. I just thought that was a fascinating statistic. And of course, that doesn't mean like, well, therefore, everyone will suddenly start eating fruits and vegetables. It just right. means like, if access is the main problem, then this could really go a long way to getting people access and very local access at that. So, mm -hmm. so that was our main, um, like food system finding, um, mm -hmm. as well as kind of like Nazi was talking about earlier as well as the um, looking at which black groups are producing um, in terms of which and, and in correspondence with which black groups are low income low access so we find of all of the black groups that Nazi correct me if I'm right if all the black groups that are producing about 55% of them are low income low yes, access we have more output basically food output in the in the areas we identify as food deserts and um, so, you know, and, and also this is to some extent a function of the space available. Yes. So some of these areas that we identify tend, that tend to sort of are overlapping with food deserts also have higher rates of vacant lots. And sure. uh, so, so as we mentioned in the paper that there might be some other socioeconomic processes going on here that, you know, this paper does not go into. But we observe that there's an association. So when we have larger space available, we produce more food. Yes. And, you know, and these tend to be the areas that are, that are identified as food deserts. There's kind of a 
an understood logic behind that where just you have these impoverished areas which of course potentially have more vacant lot uh, mm -hmm. areas so you know kind of on the the other side they may not have so i mean they may not have as much space to do these sort of the gardens that you're talking about that are on the sides of buildings that are taller than one story uh depending on the neighborhood but they do have an abundance of vacant lots and if area is kind of the dominant factor that we're considering here then there's plenty yes. of potential. yeah so in the paper we produced some fancy maps that show the distribution of each of the three types of spaces by by block group so anyone who's kind of familiar with the city of Phoenix and the way our neighborhoods are distributed uh, by wealth or amenities uh, in the city, you know, so the, like the Northwest or the Northern portions would be the wealthier and uh, um, uh, sort of more South of um, I-10, um, you know, Southwest portions where, you know, we have more of our lower income uh, block groups. So there's definitely a distribution of space along those different quadrants or portions of the city. And the more densely populated areas, obviously we have more of the, the facade space available. The, along the commercial um, corridors or the, you know, the warehouse district, we have more of the rooftop space, so on and so forth. Yeah, the maps in this are, were great. And anyone who lives in Phoenix, I think would probably not be surprised of like, oh yeah, I guess a lot of vacant lots in that area, you know. Yeah. One of those things of like, oh yeah, kind of the South Mountain and that kind of mid area. It all yeah. kind of checks out in terms of your internal logic of how you think this would, would probably go. But anyway, let's go, let's keep going with um, the other results that you found here. Okay. So, so yeah, the second goal is parks and open spaces. And so we did kind of just like a, uh, how many block groups have parks currently? And then if we considered the, some of the largest vacant lots that would feel more park-like, how many additional new, n additional new block groups have have a park or a green space in them with the uh, urban agriculture. And then the the second one, which I think leads itself to a, a, a very nice looking map is if you do a quarter mile buffer around a park or a, an urban ag spot, a large urban ag spot, um, what what proportion of the city now has has access to it. And we, we consider the quarter mile buffer to be like approximately a five minute walk. Although the reality with, um, you know, accessibility is a little different. Yeah, th these are really cool maps too. But the the idea behind what you're you're talking about here is, you know, uh, these urban gardens can potentially be thought of as green spaces for the city, in part because of the growing agriculture. They're going to be green. They're they're growing uh, fruits and vegetables in them, uh, mm -hmm. and um, this may not be as important for people outside of Phoenix who live in naturally green areas. But <laughs> one of the what, like more interesting qualities about Phoenix is that Phoenix itself is greener than the area that surrounds it uh, for most mm -hmm. of the year, at least when uh, we aren't dealing with monsoon rains or getting the, the rains in the winter. Um, so, and like green space is, is a major uh, psychological force in the area. You can go to the more wealthy parts of Phoenix and see green lawns and, uh, you know, well-tended gardens and things like that. And even just walking around your neighborhood, you have more access to green space than you would and a lot of other neighborhoods in the city. Um, mm -hmm. So I thought this is a, a really cool way to think about like, well, this is actually providing some of the aesthetic or, you know, spiritual or psychological benefits of having green spaces around you that either, that many people probably take for granted uh, or they just have access to that they don't, you know, really think about. Sorry. And in fact, and in fact we, we, you know, we, we constrained the, the sort of the number of vacant lots we would use for this sort of park-like uh, or walkability analysis. To improve neighborhoods, we said we would only look at those lots that are greater than 5,000 square meters in size. 
which is generally, you know, the, the, the kind of the, on the smaller size, the park size in the city. So if we were to, you know, if, we, if a, the smallest park in the city is 5,000 square meters, we only have that vacant lots bigger than that. And there's still plenty of those types of spaces available to be greened, whether with urban agriculture or, or another, you know, um, type of uh, deployment intervention. Uh, so there's, there's enough space to sort of improve that disparity in, um, in greenness across the city that you note. Noted, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I was going to say this is like you know important sort of statistical work and spatial analysis to do, even if you're not even talking specifically about urban agriculture solutions. I mean, these are mm -hmm. just lots that are potentially you know convertible to to other uses uh, that would be beneficial to people in the city. Um, yeah, like green infrastructure things yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, was there anything else that uh, you really liked from your results that you wanted to talk about? The last one was energy savings. Do you want to talk about that one? Yeah. Sure. sure. So, so as I mentioned, we also considered putting, um, you know, urban agriculture on, on rooftops of large buildings. And, um, and we looked at savings from energy use by buildings and, and see if that also led to some reductions in emissions. And we have some sort of, you know, um, top, top line uh, sort of comparisons to make with that. But we we find that we don't save as much energy or emissions from from this uh, rooftop deployment of urban agriculture about 0.4% uh, of commercial electricity use in the state you know the, the savings and the co2 emissions uh, uh, avoided would be about 1.7% of um, commercial building emissions for the city of phoenix so I'd say the benefits are a bit more muted in this case, but I think this is partly due to our assumptions. As Michelle noted, we did not use all the available rooftops to us. And we also did not have as fine grained data um, in terms of temperature to calculate the energy savings um, from, um, for the city of Phoenix. So I think maybe you know, our estimates are a little on the low side. But on the other hand, if we look at building by building, the, the savings are about 3% per building, which is on par with you know, national ever, um, estimates uh, for this type of deployment. So I think for, for building owners, this is an important thing to consider if they are uh, concerned about you know, uh, building energy use and if they wanna you know, engage in some kind of um, uh, activity like on the rooftop and why not urban agriculture, you know, 3% a year. I'm, I'm not sure if you said the mechanism or not, but the idea is that uh, a rooftop garden would insulate the building and yeah. reduce its heating and cooling uh, load. Yeah, I was honestly a bit surprised by these numbers because, I mean, to me, just thinking of the, you know, the, the sort of distant logic from it, it makes sense that it would lower both your heating and cooling, although you point out the fact that uh, potentially with heating in the winter uh, for what short amounts of time you actually need to do that. Basically, this is stopping the roof from absorbing sunlight in the same ways that it would previously and re-radiate an infrared uh, wavelengths back into the house as heat. Um, but I mean, that's it's kind of the, the lower concern in a place like Phoenix, where I feel like you're more running your air conditioner, you know, way more months out of the year than you are, your, than you are running your heater. Yeah, and in Phoenix also, uh, rooftop gardens compete with white roofs. So yeah. having white roofs in industrial areas uh, is definitely a, a mechanism that a lot of uh, commercial buildings are already using. And so um, kind of understanding the yeah. trade-offs between uh, a green roof versus a white roof. Then again, there is some new research showing that there are some other you know, drawbacks of, of white roofs in urban areas that previously not considered. You know, so 
Yeah, like, I think you really have to be careful with deployment of those of white roofs. I mean, uh, even just in terms of dealing with other humans in the area. Like if you have <laughs> yeah. a multi-story building next to a bunch of white roofs, you're going to be yeah. dealing with some very intense sunlight out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think one of the other things that I've seen with regards to white roofs is heating of like airspace, which make, can make it really difficult and stressful for uh, birds in the area mm. as well. But yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of the uh, a fun trade-off that Phoenix <laughs> gets to make uh, between <laughs> white roofs and green roof. Yeah, I mean, these these are all really cool results. Um, one, not to put you on the spot, but I'm always curious about how people think about the issue of water in Phoenix, because I mean, urban agriculture is very cool. Uh, I think there's a lot of you know great potential here. Um, but we are constantly also trying to balance these sorts of green initiatives in Phoenix with uh, that of water usage. One of the other kind of like famous initiatives uh, from Phoenix that we're trying to increase canopy cover in the city from something like 12% currently to 25% within the next decade or by 2040. I can't remember what our target date is at this point. But I mean, there's a lot of studies going on now on how to do that and balancing water demands. Uh, so I want, and I know you mentioned it in this paper a bit. So I just kind of want to hear. Um, what are your thoughts about water concerns? So, so let's first acknowledge, as you point out, that it's not possible to have rain-fed agriculture in our part of the state, which is a low desert, right? So everything that we grow, vegetables, fruits, you know, lawn, urban trees, everything needs to be irrigated. Um, so in our analysis, first of all, we consider only those crops that are actually grown in, Mar- grown in Maricopa County. Then we give priority, meaning we allocate a larger area to crops that are lower users of water. For example, we have a sample of 34 crops that we consider. Um, peppers and onions are higher water consuming crops than lettuce varieties per unit area. So, so in our analysis, when we allocate area to these crops, we put, um, you know, we provide a lower proportion of area for peppers and onions or similar crops that use more water than, uh, than other crops that use less. So that's one way we address water use. So, so we're not optimizing per se, but, um, but we are just mindfully integrating water use by crop. And then we, you know, based on the, how we rank the crops and the area we allocate, we come up with an estimate of total water use for the year in our analysis. And um, since we're using spaces within the city that very likely have existing infrastructure, we assume all urban agriculture applications would use um, potable water delivered uh, via pipes. And the incremental water burden we estimate is um, very close to 9.5 billion gallons per year. Now that sounds a lot, um, but it is about 7% of Phoenix's um, municipal water use based on the latest um, public estimate I was able to find this from 2014. And um, so this is one way to contextualize the amount of water use by urban ag. Another way to think about it is in terms of alternative uses. For example, we compare total water use uh, for maintaining turf grass and recreational pools in the city and find that you know urban ag would use a comparable amount of water, and um, then and overall um, the scale of urban agriculture we estimate uh, for the city would add less than half a percent of um, state's water use. And to remind um, you know the listeners and almost everybody who would listen to this podcast would know this, I think, but uh, nearly three fourths of our water use is for irrigated agriculture in the state, and not all of it is for um, for growing crops. Yes, uh, and even among those, or among that water that goes toward uh, growing crops, a lot of that becomes cattle feed and things like that. So it has this other level of uh, digestion before it even gets to something that that people are eating. So, and uh, I don't, I didn't see the numbers that 
um, in the paper itself, but it, it is really interesting to think about, like, sure, we do add a bit of a water burden, but if we're making up 90% of people's dietary uh, vegetable purposes, then that, you know, that's, that seems like a trade-off we should potentially think about. Uh, yeah. And then also a lot of the agriculture that we consume, of course, in Arizona is not grown there, but rather in Mexico and uh, southwestern, I'm sorry, yeah, in Southern California and in other locations. So mm -hmm. urban agriculture could potentially have way more savings, you know, in terms of water usage, way beyond uh, just that of Arizona, but potentially extend into the other states that are connected into our food system. Yeah, like if we grew a little bit less alfalfa and directed some of that water towards towards urban agriculture we could definitely meet a lot more of our needs without necessarily changing the amount of water we consume yeah. yes but probably it's probably it's good to sort of think about there are many trade-offs you know not just involving water use but other environmental and economic trade-offs uh, associated with growing fresh produce locally in phoenix versus in rural areas in, in arizona or growing and shipping them in other places uh like california and mexico than to Arizona. So we have not quantified those in this study, but I would say like if, um, uh, if we were to get, you know, like the next step um, would be to do, uh, you know, a serious life cycle analysis yeah. of comparing production in the city versus, you know, like in, in the nearby rural areas or, you know, shipping stuff from Yuma versus Mexico or from California, and then look at the water impacts because these are, these are important questions and we are definitely a, a water scarce resource state. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a, a really cool paper to, to see urban agriculture, you know, taken extremely seriously and, you know, saying like, all right, let's just assume that uh, we have the, the will and that we can do this. And, you know, there's no reason not to, to, to think all of these things. It's just kind of, uh, you know, something that hasn't been done before. But um, so the, the next question I wanted to get into is uh, what do you see as kind of the biggest institutional or social barriers potentially to actually implementing this kind of wide-scale urban agriculture? Yeah, so I, I see a couple of different barriers. Um, the first we've kind of talked about with costs associated with urban farming. So there's, um, you know, things like water costs, but there's also startup costs for testing urban soils to see if they're safe to grow food in or, or hauling in new soils and planters if they're not. Um, and then reoccurring costs like water or labor, um, seeds, fertilizer, potentially land if you have to pay rent um, on the on the property you're using or the or the facade or the rooftop. Um, and so states and local governments are, are definitely paying attention to these barriers for urban agriculture. Uh, I think an interesting one is in 2014, the state of California passed in uh, Urban Agriculture Incentives Zone Act, which gives a property tax break to the owners of vacant land to commit to their land to being used um, for urban agriculture for at least five years. Um, and then the like zone part is that uh, the a given city government draws the zone where this incentive is applicable. So in 2017, LA took this California law and designated more than 8,000 lots to be eligible. Um, but in the following year, only four lots had used the, the program. Um, and so I think the, the main limiting factor, especially in rapidly growing metropolitan areas like LA or Phoenix, is that vacant lots are often being held for future development and, um, and landowners don't want to commit to urban agriculture for a long period of time. And so Phoenix actually had a, 
a large urban farm at Central Ave and Indian School Road uh, that was shut down because the lot was transferred from government ownership to d developers, uh, but it still hasn't been developed. Oh. But anyway, so <laughs> we've seen we've seen a lot of urban agriculture successes though. And um, being from Chicago, I'm going to plug Chicago. Uh, Chicago is one of the the leading cities for urban agriculture in the United States, and it's it's through changes the government's made in zoning laws, but also strong community support and a lot of um, public and private initiatives. And particularly relevant to our paper is that Chicago has a large number of rooftop and vertical urban farms. And this can definitely help alleviate some of the problems with landowners not wanting to commit vacant lots to, to urban agriculture. Yeah, I, uh, I had not heard about these programs before I read your paper, but that's, it's really cool to see that cities are, you know, actively trying to incentivize this. And, uh, you know, there are other like little, little things that don't, you don't, um, unless you get into this, that you're not aware of. Um, you know, we have different sort of zoning. Um, uh, I mean, every city has their own zoning, but in Phoenix, we don't have a specific zoning category for urban agriculture. Uh, for example, if you're growing chickens or vegetables in your backyard for your own consumption, fine, you know, up to a limit, I think. Um, but if you wanted to sell those commercially, if you declare yourself a little farm, you can't quite do it from your backyard because you're a residential zone. And there isn't a commercial zoning subcategory related to growing food in a city. So, so you know, there are some, there have been some growers who found difficult to, to engage in this type of activity on a commercially, not, you know, as a community garden or, you know, as a pilot study um, uh, or as a demonstration thing as, as part of a university. But if you really wanted to do this to make money, it's not as easy to do it in the heart of the city. So that's one thing I think the city of Phoenix can address specifically for, for this, you know, for our case. Yeah, this uh, this mentioned the term, which, you know, just because of the way that urban gardening is usually presented or urban agriculture is usually presented, um, I think I just kind of only thought about community gardens in terms of nonprofits. Uh, and one of these initiatives, I think, that you talk about in Utah um, from 2012 uh, talks about um, special qualifications for land that is used for for-profit uh, urban agriculture, which I thought was, you know, really interesting and potentially limiting in some ways, but at the same time, you know, that's something that probably should be incentivized that, you know, you can't just rely on nonprofits picking all this stuff up, but potentially exploring like, well, what would it take to actually entice small or large scale people growing, you know, urban crops yeah. for profit? Yeah, and there's actually a company that uh, started in New York, but now also operates in Chicago that's doing that. They're like a for-profit urban agriculture. They're called Gotham Greens, and they yeah. do like a lot of uh, lettuce and things like that. And it's, it's I think, cool when urban agriculture is implemented at like a, a variety of different business models, whether it's for-profit or non-profit. I think that's what could make it sustainable across a couple of different um I agree. And I think maybe one the one thing that private sector can also bring to the table is um a more efficient use of resources. There is some anecdotal evidence that shows that um, urban agriculture applications use these precision agriculture technologies better than farmers do, for example, uh, you know, commercial scale farming. And they're very mindful about using the space and water and nutrients, um, using all kinds of you know, timers and, and sensors and, and, and very cool technological stuff that is you know, not beyond our reach anymore. They're not you know, prohibitively expensive. Yeah, this was a very interesting thing to think about. And like also kind of the institutional knowledge isn't really there in a lot of cities. You know, like some people may have small gardens as the city has grown and things like that. But if you're trying to bring 
potentially new and younger generations of people into this, you have to provide incentives for, for a variety uh, to build up the knowledge base and to build up the skill set for actually executing uh, urban agriculture, which is potentially different for, for many different reasons, either from the lay of the land, to the, the kinds of soil you're dealing with, to the, the regulations and incentives that the, the local city is giving you. It takes time, obviously, and a lot of experience to build up. Um, and so with that, I think that's pretty much all the questions I have. So I guess I want to thank you two very much uh, again. What is it? Nasli Uridera Aragon and Michelle. That's Nasli. Thank you. Nasli. Yeah. Excuse me. Oh, there we go. Uh, Nasli Uridera Aragon and Michelle Stuhlmacher. Para mi tristeza violeta azul, clavelina roja para mi pasión y para saber si me corresponde de un blanco manzanillón. Si me quiere mucho poquito nada, tranquilo queda mi corazón. The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or URX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about Eurex, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.